I've often thought that we, as individuals, kind of enjoy when life seems to be going well, when life seems to be easy, when life seems to just kind of be going along the path that we've kind of envisioned, right? And that we enjoy that. We, we, we want that to be the case. But so often, what really ends up happening is that we don't end up in the place that we start from. We don't end up uh, where we think we are. We don't always end up finishing where we, we think we will. God has, has called us and in that call, there is this design where we as Christians, where we as the church, where we as the body of believers, we will get up and we will go and we will teach and we will preach and we will share and we will convict others and allow them to know that the life that they're living is not the one that God wants from them. And they will come to an understanding of their need to be baptized, to repent, and they'll, they'll understand the gospel. And that, that calls place on us, too, that we're no longer to be a part of the world in the sense of this world of sin, to be worldly. And that change that, that we envision for others has to be very real for us. It has to be one that we're, we're actually committed to making. That we leave the old self behind and are made new. This will, take, um, this will take some self-examination. A, a willingness to honestly look at how we act, how we speak, how we treat others. All of the things that we think of, of what makes us who we are. We have to be willing to examine those things and, and see what defines us, not just what we, we think defines us, but what actually defines us through our actions, our, our personalities, the characteristics that, that people looking at us will say, well, this is, this is how you act, this is how you speak, this is what, this is what defines you. Are we willing to honestly examine those things and make changes where they are necessary? Because it shouldn't be that we call ourselves uh, Christians and then live a life of, for example, arrogance or pride. Because those two things uh, don't mesh, right? And we understand that there's, there's a discord between those two things. So we shouldn't live in, in selfishness. We shouldn't live a life that is cruel or unforgiving. There has to be changes. We have to, we have to grow and mature. We should want to be more and more like the God who saved us, who loves us, who created us. And not desire to say as infants in Christ. But have a desire to grow and mature, to learn and understand more and more of what it is that we, who are individuals, should look like as we long to be like God has called us to be. And again, we're going to have to be able to examine ourselves, to look at who we actually are and how we're actually acting, how we're actually speaking, and begin to make those changes, to choose to be different to be pleasing to God and have a life 
that is set or striving to be that person who is pleasing to God and takes on the attributes of Christ. Who takes seriously the idea of the, of the fruits of the Spirit and growing those things. I think the, the world around us, for sure, doesn't understand the idea of, of sin and what it does in our relationship with God, what it does in our lives. And that, that really shouldn't be the case for us. But that often I think what the world pushes on us is that, that we don't have to worry about sin and sometimes maybe not even see it. Because we can, we can justify sometimes our own actions, we can justify our, our own thoughts, so we can justify how we speak. And we can say, well, that, that person kind of, you know, that kind of had it coming, right? So it's okay to talk to them like that or speak to them like that or treat them like that because they're not really a very nice person anyways. So it, someone had to stand up to them. Someone had to tell them how it was. Someone had to be rude to them so they would understand that they couldn't be rude. But if I'm a, if I'm a Christian... And I, and I live the way that Christ wants me to live. And I'm also at the same time looking at myself, examining myself, and I'm not very kind to people around me. Is that, the, is that what God wants from us? Is that, the, is that really the life that, that Christ envisioned for us when we take on His name? To say, well, I, I'm, I'm 100% a Christian, but that person, or these people, or whatever, I, I don't have to be kind to them. And we justify and say, well, you know, it's a hard world. It's a hard world, and people, people really need to learn to grow up. And I'm, I'm, I'm a part of that. I'm teaching them that the world is, is not always fair or, or nice or good. And they'll be better off for it. Is that, is that true? Is that, is that really? Is that really the call that we have? Or, or I, I'm a Christian, but I am not really very humble. It's because I'm just so amazing. And I, I don't really have the opportunity to be humble. Well, make, make a comparison. Make a comparison to the life that we're living and the life that was given so that we can have life. And I think we begin to understand the absolute humility that we should live in. Now, those two examples uh, are, are not the only two that we could go through, but they're designed to, I think, show us that having a life that is lived in service of Christ is more important, and we have to be able to change, change who we are to fit into the mold that God is wanting us to be in. That we cannot be what we were before. Just can't. We cannot continue to live that old life. Instead, we have to think along the lines always, of is this pleasing to God? Is this pleasing to You know what our world would be like if before every action, every response, every word, people would say, is this pleasing to God? And align then their thoughts or speech or action to fit what Scripture actually says is pleasing to God? Imagine the absolute change that would take place in our world. It would be mind-boggling. Well, that's what we're supposed to be doing as a church, right? 
living a life that is pleasing to God. Now, we understand that that's not going to happen. We understand that there's people that are going to live a life of selfishness, of greed, of, of pride and arrogance, and they're going to turn away from God. But we are the, the church. We are Christians. We are the children of God. We are saved. We no longer have to be that. Instead, we as a church should be living in kindness and goodness and in gentleness, in self-control, and all that is right and good. And I hope we see then the inherent flaws of living a life apart from that and then still clinging to the name of Christ. Because that's not how Christ wants us to live. So we understand that there's going to be a time where we need to grow and and learn and, and all of that, but to have as our motivation to be pleasing to God. Now, in First Corinthians chapter thirteen, we, we read through this this wonderful passage on love, the idea of, of what love is, what love looks like, and how we are to love. And in the very last verse it says, and these three remain faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. I want to look at these characters. I want to look at, at, at the definition of these things and how this should change us. So the first one there is faith. Now, we understand faith, right? We understand what faith means. Right? Now, I think sometimes we fall, we go into James, and I think sometimes, uh, even though we have an understanding of faith, even though we have the ability to really go through Scripture and look at what faith is, I think if we go into James, we see that there is a trap of falling into the idea that faith is a belief in God. That I believe in God. So I have inherently then have faith in God. But that's not, that's not true, right? Faith is not this inherent belief in God, and a belief in God is not inherently faith. Now, if we have faith, obviously we believe in God, but there's more to it than just that belief in God, isn't there? Faith is this belief in God, this trust in God, this understanding that our lives have to be reliant on Him. If we truly live by faith, we understand that each step we take has to be done with God. And there is no life apart from Him. That we do not choose to say, well, this is, our, this is my faithful life, this is my Christian life, and over here is the other part of my life. Faith compels us to understand that there is just life in God, and how we act is a re response to our faith, and faith obviously is that as well. That faith is beyond belief. It's not just belief. It is a part of who we are. That we are faithful. That we live by faith. And that affects everything that we do. Every choice that we make. Because we are wanting to be close to God. That we 100% understand our reliance on the God who loves us and created us and has saved us through His Son. And that faith, that understanding of faith, then leads us to action. Belief does not lead to action. Right? You can believe there is a God and do nothing about it. You can believe that there is a God and actively work against God. Satan knows that there is a God. All of his minions know that there is a God. 
And they understand and know what God has done, who God is. They know the very nature of God. They understand God's word. They understand what Jesus has done on the cross. Their belief is not faith. Faith compels us to act. It demonstrates itself through action, through how we speak, how we respond. The truth of who we are, the very definition of who we are as faithful Christians then. We understand that, that living by faith, that this is life. This is our life. Tomorrow when we, when we are, even this afternoon as we leave this place, and we go back out into the world, whether it's at school, whether it's at work, whether it is uh, the activities that we do throughout the day, we're going to interact with people who don't understand God's Word. And you're going you're to interact with people that don't understand the, the love that God has for them. You're going to interact with people who try your patience. You may do that today. You may be looking at me going, yep, that's right. People who try my patience. Well, how do we live? Well, it's on the top of the board there. We live by faith. That we trust in God. That we trust in what that He has called us to be is the way that life is supposed to be. So when Satan comes in and says, no, 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 here. Figure this out. This is, this is what's actually good for you. Depart from God's word. Depart from the will of God. Come over here because look, this is so much better. We cling to what? We cling to our God. We cling to our relationship with God. We cling to his word because we trust in him. We know that he is right and that we are living by faith. That this is who we are. This is the very definition of who we are. That we are a people of faith. And there is no departing then from God. There is no walking away from his path. There is no better or greener pasture over there. Because we understand and know what God has done, who God is, and how we are to live. And what that does for us, how that changes us. Turn into Philippians. I want to read in Philippians chapter 3. We're going to pick up in verse 12. It says, not that I have already obtained all of this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, ahead I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things, and if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already obtained. Join together in following my example, brothers, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For I have often told you before, and I tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. There is a divide there, right? In the two groups of people. There are those that are, have their minds set on earthly things and that there are those then that live by faith. And when those who are living by faith, their citizenship is where? Is in heaven. It defines them. It's who they are. It's who we are. And it should define us. For our citizenship is not here. Our wife is not based on even the things around us or the worldly things around us, but on pleasing God and living by faith. Now, it says in the verse 14, I press on uh, toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. We have this hope, do we not? And again, going back to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, it says that there's faith, hope, and love, and we have hope. Often I think of uh, hope as something set before us. Right? I'm, and that's true. I'm pressing on. I'm pressing on toward the goal, right? To win the, the prize for which God has called me heavenward. That hope is set before me. However, there is a uniqueness in being a part of, of the body of believers, of having grace that has washed us clean. Because that hope is not just something that is set before us, but what? It is something that we are a part of right now. So, we are a part of the body of believers. We are a part of the kingdom. We are a part of, of all that God offers right now. And when that takes place, at Christ's return, what will happen? Well, we'll get to see the goal or the finish line then. But we are a part of the kingdom now, this kingdom that will never end. It's interesting because, you know, God, where Christ, when he came and he had this ministry and he was living and, and, and teaching and sharing, he lived in a world that, that kind of perceived the kingdom that the Savior would set up as a physical one. That the majority thought that the Savior would come and literally sit on the throne of David and establish Israel again as this world power and overthrow the Romans, and would just, they would just be great. And they would once again be lifted up to the glory that they previously had. And so they were waiting for a Savior that would do that. They were waiting for a Savior that would come in and, and kind of in a military sense take over and be this king. So when Jesus comes along and says that he's going to suffer and that he's going to die, what's the response? going to tear down the temple and in three days rebuild what what's the response even his disciples said what to him no no that's never going to happen that's never going to happen to you and he has to rebuke them and say no this is the way it has to be that in order to be a part of the kingdom this is what has to happen and we now get to look back at that we get to we get to understand that teaching that we are a part of the kingdom because Jesus went to the cross and died for us. That Jesus established a kingdom that will never end. It will never falter. It will never fade. It will never be broken. It will never be overthrown. It is eternal. And we are a part of that right now. As much as we march toward or run this race toward the prize that is set ahead of us, we are a part of the kingdom now. We are a part of the body of believers. That we're not, we're not waiting for a day in the future. 
where we can really, you know, really strive to be pleasing to God or really live for God or really, you know, have all the benefits that, that God has promised us. We have right now this hope. And this hope will not disappoint us because we have this hope in Christ Jesus. The world, again, does not understand Jesus as the Savior. What it is that Jesus has done. That he left the splendor of heaven. That he left that and became a man so that he could live a life in perfection to die on a cross, and as was mentioned already earlier for us, that even those who were his disciples, those who were closest to him, all deserted him, all ran away, all left him alone, so that he would go to a cross alone for the sins of mankind, that he would go to that cross for our sins, for mine and for yours, so that he could be our savior, that he could literally save us from ourselves and what we have done. We get to live in that hope each and every day. When we wake up, we know that that is the hope that we live in. That life, even if it goes up or down, if there's good or bad, all the physical around us, no matter how life is going, we have this hope in Christ Jesus, who is Lord and Savior, who is the Son of God and has died for us. What an amazing hope we have. I hope you understand and recognize that hope in your life. That you understand what that has done for us. That we can live now with strength and courage. That it provides a level of of fortitude that we cannot get anywhere else. That it changes how we can stand against the devil. That it changes how we can stand against those who oppose God. Because we know absolutely the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. There is no question, there is no uncertainty about what Christ has done. The victory has already been attained. We're not waiting, hoping that it's going to happen. We're hoping, obviously, for the hope that we get to have with Jesus Christ. We're, we're waiting for that day, right? We're anticipating that day when we get to be with God eternally. But that is already assured. That's already going to happen. God has already gained the victory over sin and over death through Jesus. And we get to be a part of that. Do we live like that? You know, I asked the question earlier, do we live by, by faith? Do we, do we understand that we are, should be defined by faith? Do we live with hope? Do we live with the hope that we have? Turn into Romans. And in Romans chapter 5, I want to read a, uh, the first five verses. It says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. 
Not only so, we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who He has given us. Do we boast in the hope of the glory of God? Do we understand that we are a part of that? Do we understand that we are a part of the kingdom? Do we understand how we stand right now as a part of this and truly revel in the hope that is provided, even if we go through all this? Again, so often we think that if we're going through suffering, that something must be wrong. Can't speak for all of you. But if I'm going through things that I, I feel like are really hard and I feel like I'm suffering, my, I, what's going on? Why, why is this happening? And what does this passage say to us? That we should what? Now, I understand the difficulty of this passage, but we should glory in our sufferings because you know that suffering produces perseverance. And perseverance produces character. And character, what? Hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That hope, we understand and know that God has not walked away from us, that God has not left us, that God's plan is still taking place, that God is still perfect and loving and kind, and he knows what he's doing, and that hope allows us to live in confidence knowing that everything is unfolding as God wants it to. Are we still going through suffering? Yep. But we're gaining perseverance. We're gaining character. And through character, hope. And all of this is done because God loves us. The greatest of these three, faith, hope, and love, is love. Love should unite us and bind us together. Love should change us. When we understand and truly know God's love for us. You turn into John and John chapter 3. We get this wonderful passage about how much God loves us and what he's done. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That we might be saved through him. That we might have life through him. That we might have an eternity with God through him. This is God's love for us, that even while we were enemies, even while we were still sinners, even while we were lost, even while we were working against him, even while we didn't understand, he sent his son to die for us, so that we could come to be a place where we are at peace with him. Imagine, just imagine the love that it takes to create the world knowing that the world will turn away from you and that you will have to send your son to die for this world that you are about to create. And he creates the world. Us, as individuals. Because he loves us. And what he asks from us is very simple. Love your neighbor. And we can get into all the, the fancy arguments or excuses about who my neighbor is or all the excuses on why we, we shouldn't love our neighbor or why we shouldn't go over and, and, and learn our neighbor's names or treat them kindly and all the excuses that the world puts forth. Well, you know, you just can't trust people, so lock your doors, close your windows, and 
throw stones at anyone who comes on your yard. Well, that's maybe a little extreme, but love your neighbor. God loves you with an incredibly passionate love. Even while you were lost, even while you were a sinner, even while you were at your worst, God loves you. And asks of you and calls you to look around the world that you're in. The neighborhood you're in, the community you're in, the, the set of friends and family you're in, at your co-workers, to love those around you with the kind of love that he has given to you. This isn't always going to be easy. Um, people are... I don't know what the right word to describe people is, but people are hard sometimes, are difficult. Um, that includes ourselves, but sometimes people are really hard to get along with and hard to love. And we think, well, you know, that's such a hardship on me to love that person who's difficult to love. Well, God's looking at the world and there's approximately six billion of us loving us when we're difficult to love. Now, God again calls us to love those around us. To treat them with kindness and compassion, gentleness, goodness, maybe even some self-control, but to love. To, to clearly love so that we can show them the love that we have also for the Lord our God. And that's what else he's asked us, right? What are the two greatest commands? Love your neighbor and love the Lord your God. And I find it difficult for us to say that we are Christians and, and only choose one of these things. Knowing God's love for us, well, I'm, I'll, I'll treat the people around me, but I won't, I won't really spend time in prayer or studying God's word or cultivating my relationship with God or the other one where I'll spend time in God's word and I'll spend time praying and I'll spend time cultivating my relationship with God but those neighbors no that's that is too much this is what God has asked to love the Lord your God to love your neighbor to know God's love for you we cannot hide or make excuses we cannot step out of the world we are here. We are a part of this world. We love the Lord our God and we love our neighbor. Above all, anything else, we love God. And the love that we have for him compels us and dictates how we act and speak and think because we truly want to have a heart for God. Turn into, into 1 John. And in 1 John chapter 4, I want to read from verse uh, 7 down. Uh, to the end, and uh, we'll we'll do this uh, we'll do this reading here in, in closing. It says, "Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed His love among us." He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. 
This is love. Not that, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and His love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in Him and He in us. He has given us His Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how we love this is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love because perfect love drives out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. Whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister.